You know, C.S. Lewis once said, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. You never know how much you really believe anything until it comes to a matter of life and death. My family started going to church in the mid-90s after my parents had gone through a series of events and my mom started taking my brother and I to church. Now, the 90s were a weird time. I think anyone who lived through them can recognize that, but the 90s was a really weird time in church. Uh, in, In the church world, in the Christian world, particularly in North America, especially if you grew up as a youth or young adult, there became this fascination with living your faith out into death. And this came because of a whole bunch of things that were taking place in the world all at the same time. I remember one of the most significant events was the mass shooting in Columbine in 99. And there was this story that came out about how the killers had asked some people if they believed in God before he killed them. At the same time, other places in the world, there were some missionaries who were being martyred for their faith. And so these things led to a catalyst in conversation, particularly with youth and young adults because of the nature of the kids who had died, where we started to focus on what we would do with our faith if someone had a gun to our head. Now that's a bit of a strange conversation to have time and time again, and it really was reinforced. It wasn't just sort of a one-off conversation that you would have in church. It was something that was everywhere. Now, not to my knowledge, there was never really that much of a risk growing up in Edmonton area in the mid-90s to live out for my faith, but this became the conversation, and it started getting kind of blasted as a message to us through Christian culture. We would walk around with our Walkmans blasting DC Talks Jesus freaks. What would people think if they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? What would people do if they find out it's true? Michael W. Smith started playing a song that was all about this girl Cassie who had uh, supposedly said that she was a Christian before the shooter shot her in Columbine. We were given WWJD and FROG bracelets to wear everywhere. What would Jesus do? Fully rely on God. And then we were given, of course, books called Left Behind, which was a series to tell us all about how the end times was coming next week, and we should be worried and be ready to live our life because we're going to die. This is what I grew up in, and it was a a very strange sort of time, particularly because my family hadn't been in church for a long time, but I'm learning all this, and and there was some good to it. There were some negatives to growing up like that. You know, I, I am thankful for the parts of it where it encouraged people to really question their convictions. I really am thankful for the fact that it sort of spurred a new wave of people interested in apologetics, which is the study of defending the Christian faith. I'm thankful for some of those things, but the biggest tragedy in all that is we ended up focusing everything about the Christian life on the last few minutes before you would die. We ended up growing up going, okay, I'm supposed to live my life right at the very end, able to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus with a gun to our head. But there was no emphasis on growing up 
paying attention to the Christian life. Today we're looking at a passage of scripture that takes place in the early church. And as long as I've grown up, I've only heard us preach on the very end. It's the story of a guy named Stephen. He grew up in the the church that was outside of Jerusalem, and then he became a leader, and then eventually he was martyred for his faith. And it's an incredible story, and we're going to go through some of it today. But what dawned on me as I came to it is that we always focused on just the last couple verses at the end of his life. And we never considered, I never considered, maybe it's just me, but I had never really considered the character of Stephen up until then. We only know Stephen in the Bible for a very short period of time. But in those couple of chapters, we see a life that was really well lived for Jesus. And so my hope today as we study this story of death is that we wouldn't just focus on would I live or die in the way that Stephen did at the end of his life, but is there something here that I need to take out for living my life today. This is an interesting story that the Apostle Luke decides to include in the book of Acts. And if you've got your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 6. But it's an interesting inclusion because of why I think it was included. You see, this is one story we have of a man who died for his faith, but it's actually one of thousands The church at the time was just a bloodbath. I mean, the Romans wanted to kill the Christians. The Jews wanted to kill the Christians. Everyone wanted these people who called themselves follower of Jesus dead. And so everyone was getting slaughtered left, right, and center for their faith. Yet for some reason, Luke decided, I'm going to pick out this story. And I'm going to include it in the account of the early church. And I don't think it was just because of the death that Stephen died but because of that life he lived. In the verses that take place right before where we're going to pick up in verse 8 today, we read about this problem that had arisen in the early church. There was all these Jews from inside Jerusalem and from outside who had come on in, and as they worshiped together, they decided to live together and serve one another, and so people sold possessions, they served each other food, they cared for each other's families. But in the midst of all this, one group got overlooked, which were these older widows from one part of the community and so the church decided we need to deal with this and so they went out and they found a number of leaders found seven in fact seven leaders who were had a good reputation they were wise and they were caring and out of that seven people who were selected out of the thousands in the church we had Stephen and Stephen ended up dedicating his whole life to serving the church and he started by serving these widows some food but it didn't end there let's read in acts chapter 6 verse 8 where it goes from there now stephen who is a man full of god's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among the people however opposition arose from members of the synagogue of freedmen as it was called so there's the jews of cyrene and alexandrian and the provinces of Uh, Cilicia and Asia who began to argue with Stephen. So these are the people from the outer Jewish people group that that Stephen's a part of and they start not to be very happy with Stephen because he's what he's doing and how he's drawing attention in on them. 
They couldn't stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave as he spoke. And so they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Big no-nos in the Jewish day. So they stirred up all these people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and eventually they seized Stephen and bring him before the Sanhedrin, the religious and court rulers of the day. And they got these false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him, but what did they see? They saw the face of an angel on him. Now from here what we see is that Stephen ends up addressing some of these things and they're saying, yeah, Stephen's against the law, he's against Moses, he's against the temple, he's against this place where we're gathered. And, and Stephen goes back and forth and there's this brilliant sermon that he does. But I don't want us to focus so much on, on his words today, but his um, character. But I'd encourage you to go back and read that this week and just see how Stephen wrestles with all of this to point out, no, I'm not against those things. I'm actually speaking for how Jesus ties all these things together. But after he does that, if we skip down to chapter 7, verse 51, we see that Stephen ends up confronting them at the end of this message. He says, you stiff-necked people. That's a great way to win over a crowd. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who those who predicted the coming of the righteous one and now you've betrayed and murdered him you who have received the law that was given through the angels you don't obey it so when the members of the sanhedrin heard all of this they were furious they gnashed their teeth at him but stephen full of the holy spirit looked up to heaven and saw the glory of god and jesus standing at the right hand of god Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and started yelling at the top of their voices and they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul who we'll read about a little later. While they were stoning him, Stephen just prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, meaning he died. Now, it's really easy for us to cling on to, to this end part here because it, it, it's an exceptional story. I mean, it's just incredible what Stephen did. But what sometimes is missed, as I said, is the life of character that he lived. Stephen's been such an inspiring guy that he's inspired people throughout history with his character. Lord Tennyson wrote a poem about him, which you can see on the screen here. He said, he heeded not reviling tones, nor sold his heart to idle moans, though cursed and scorned and bruised with stones, but looking upward full of grace. He prayed, and from a happy place, God's glory smote him on the face. Stephen's character was one that was looked upon by God to even transform him. Stephen's known all throughout these passages as being full of grace. He's full of the Holy Spirit's power. He's wise. He speaks truth even when it would cost 
him dearly. He was full of conviction of living a life like Jesus. And we actually see that Stephen is probably one of the best examples in all of Scripture of someone's life who mirrors so clearly the life of Jesus. It's not as good, but it's still a great example to follow. I mean, let's just take a look at what it says here in verse 8, that he's full of grace. It says, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace, performed great wonders and signs amongst the people. There's something in Stephen's character, in his disposition, in the way that he just was, that lured people in that changed their perception of him. I mean, Peter goes into, or Stephen goes into this place where he's going into a court case that is a sham. I mean, these people are already upset at him. There's already false witnesses lined up to kill him. And when he gets questioned, these people who are so angry at him look at him, and in verse 15, what do they see? They saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen had this amazing disposition that was like Jesus's. We're told in scripture that Jesus never had a physical attribute that other people would be drawn to and desire. We, we don't get this picture of a charismatic, beautiful figure, but what we know is that his gentleness of spirit won people in. And Stephen is the same, much the same in that way. What we see is that he's full of God's grace. A lot of times we talk about God's grace in churches, this free gift that he gives to us that, he, that God would send his son Jesus to die for us and for our sin. And that if we would have faith and trust in Jesus, we would be saved from our sin and that we would get to go to heaven one day. And that's all true and that's all great. But one of the things we forget about grace is that it's not just about payment for our sin. It's about transforming our lives to look more like Jesus. Stephen had this character and this disposition that allowed people to look at him and see that there was something holy going on. Looks like an angel. Look at this guy. Something's coming out from within him. But not only is he full of this grace, he's the goodness and mercy and love and free gift giving of God, but he's also full of the Holy Spirit's power. We see that he goes around and he goes from not just serving tables where he gives people some food to be sustenance for them, where he gives them hope for a new day and that, but he begins to teach them and, and touch them and heal them. And we see that all this miraculous stuff starts to happen because he's filled with God's Holy Spirit. And this is just a testimony to what we read at the beginning of the book of Acts. Before Jesus ascended up into heaven, he said that one day his Holy Spirit would come on his followers and he would give them the power to be his witnesses. I will fill you with my Holy Spirit power and then you will go be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. And this is the power that Stephen has. He has the power not in and of himself. It wasn't before he knew Jesus that he was going around healing people. It was after he gave his life over to serving Jesus that the Holy Spirit fills him and he's able to accomplish incredible things in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. But not only is he gracious and look transformed, not only does he have this power because of what God's doing in him, but he's also full of wisdom. We read in verse 10, they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as they spoke. This is an interesting thing. 
Stephen, who's this Hellenistic Jew, so he's a Jew that grew up outside of Israel, culturally different, more Greek than Jewish, but is a follower of Jesus, was this man that these religious leaders would have looked on and been like, this guy is a hillbilly idiot. That was their perception of who he was coming in from the outside. But whenever they come and speak with him, they can't even stand up against him. These well-educated men who have spent the whole of their lives dedicated to studying the Old Testament and following in the ways of God look at this guy and are infuriated because they can't compete with him. Why? Because as Luke observes and others observed around because the wisdom that the Holy Spirit gave to Stephen. The Holy Spirit gives this wisdom, he gives this power, and he gives this grace to Stephen. And these become the things that characterize him. Well, we might wonder, why do these things characterize him? What is it about Stephen and maybe even all these early church followers that was so different? You know, a lot of times I've sort of let it slide by and been just like, oh, it's, just, it's just easier for them. I mean, these early church followers, they were just closer to Jesus' time, and so surely it must have been easier for them. I mean, natural. So they just get filled up extra big because they're closer to the date Jesus was here. I don't know how it works, but that seems what it is. But when I really consider what Scripture tells us, that when we spend time with God, when we grow in our relationship with Him, that the fruits of the Holy Spirit will come to bear in our lives, I must think, well, that must be what happened with Stephen. And when we look at the culture and the place where Stephen was, we see that that is what followers of Jesus did. They didn't just come to church on a Sunday and then go throughout the rest of their week thinking, hey, I've done the right thing this week. They actually dedicated the whole of their lives to being in relationship with Jesus. We see that they didn't just gather regularly, they gathered with other believers daily. They didn't just pray on their own, but they prayed with every one of Jesus' followers as often as they were able. They didn't just come once a week to the synagogue to study Jesus' teachings. They gathered in their homes regularly and daily and talked about the things of Jesus in their everyday lives. This is how Stephen becomes grace-filled, powerful, and wise. He dedicates his life really to being in a relationship with God and following him. A lot of us want to be characterized in the way Stephen is. I would love, you know, I've heard those stories where someone comes up and, 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 you know, someone's like, I just knew that person was a Christian because of X. And I think we, we might have all heard some story to that variation. And when we go, I want to be like that. But the question is, are we willing to do what it takes to pave the road to get there? There's a promise in Scripture that if we dedicate our lives to following Jesus, to connecting with the Holy Spirit, then we will bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. You read about that in Galatians. But so often we go, I want the fruit, but I want to skip all the growing season. Are we willing to do what's necessary to live our lives to gain this character of Christ? 
This character of Christ took Stephen to live with other great attributes and characteristics. We see that Stephen becomes this man who is able to be a speaker of truth. He's like Jesus in this, that he's willing to speak truth even if it's going to cost him. I mean, when the Sanhedrin hears about the charges against Stephen, they say, is this really true? And Stephen has an opportunity here to be like, nah, I'm just misunderstood. You know, I'm, I'm just one of these outside Jews. I'm just trying to learn. I'm trying to figure this out and, and, and follow God. Can you forgive me? Can you give me a pass? I, I, I think Stephen probably could have got away with that. They would have looked at him. Oh, yeah, there's the hillbilly idiot from out in the country. He's trying to be a, Jew, a good Jew, so we'll, we'll give him a pass. But no, Stephen knew the truth. And he knew what God had done for him. He knew what Jesus' death, which we celebrate in communion, he knew what that really meant. He'd experienced the transformative nature of it in his life, and so he spoke truth to them. He said, you guys have this all wrong. You really desire to follow God, and, and I love that you love the law. I love that you love Moses. I love that you love the temple, but you're missing out on something you're missing out on what Jesus means. And he cuts deep. He comes before them and he says with convictions, you guys have done it wrong again. Time and time again, you have fought against God and it's bringing no good to your life. He spoke truth. But what he wanted for the people gathered before him is for them to see things reframed in a new way to understand who Jesus is and who Jesus could be for them. He wanted them to understand just as much as we all need today that everyone has sinned and we are dead without him. And Stephen spoke it that bluntly. You're dead without Jesus. You need him in your life. And even though he knew that he would be perceived as a man who just spills foolish lies, he spoke the truth as Jesus did. We see all throughout the Gospels, this is Jesus time and time again. Jesus goes to the religious leaders, he goes to those who are far from God, and he speaks to them truth with love. You're dead in the water. Your hope is gone. That thing you're clinging on to, there's maybe some goodness to it, but it's not enough without me. These are the things that we're called to do as we live out a life of faith. And it's uncomfortable. There's times where it's just the plane isn't fun, but fun's not the point. We're supposed to live our lives with the character of Christ just like Stephen did. And that means there's going to be times where we speak the truth, even if we know it'll be not so good for us. And we see that Stephen really had a steeled conviction about this. He gets stoned for this. I don't, I don't know what people kind of think stoning is like. Ah, uh, they jump, dump one rock on him and he's dead. Like, or, oh, they throw a couple rocks at him and it starts to hurt and he has some time to change his mind, which would have actually been true. Stoning was no small thing in Stephen's day. It was actually this quite difficult, long, arduous process. To give you some insight, I want to share with you this quote from a guy named Frederick Buckner. Frederick Bruckner uh, tells the story a little bit different, but he talks about how difficult stoning is, and he does it through the eyes of those who are stoning Stephen. He says, stoning someone to death, somebody as young, even someone as young and as healthy as Stephen, is not easy. 
You do not get the job done with the first few rocks and broken bottles. And even after you get the man down, it's long, hot business. So to prepare themselves for the workout, they stripped to the waist and got someone to keep their eyes on their things till they were through. Our faith really plays out. What we believe, just as C.S. Lewis said, it comes to life with whether we actually believe it or not when we come to a matter of life and death. Stephen would have endured minutes, possibly hours, of being pelted with rocks and bottles and shards of pottery. He would have been mocked and accused. I mean, this was such sweaty business that all the guys who took part would have had to take off their coats, left it with someone to attend to so that they could go through the process. And all the while, Stephen never changes. He never says, oh, well, you know, maybe, you know, oh, well, actually don't know. All through the process, we see that Stephen is convicted of not just who Jesus is to him, but who Jesus can be for those who are persecuting him. In verse 59 and 60, we read, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I don't know if my character could handle that. I really don't know if I could be sitting there being pelted to death and say, God save them, forgive them. I think there would be a whole lot more curse words coming out of my mouth pointed at them. I don't think it would be this kind, gentle thing, but there is something in Stephen that's different. It's the very same thing that Jesus gave to him because we see that Jesus did this very same thing. As Jesus is being crucified, those who are executing him look up at him as he hangs on the cross and Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. This is the character that we're called to live with. And it's no small call. It's something... It's not just meant for our moments in death. It's meant for the whole of our lives. Will we pursue it? Will we aim to live after it in the same way that Jesus did? C.S. Lewis said, You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. And I believe that's true. And I really hope that everyone who's here will be able to stand one day, whether it's because they're facing mockery for their faith, whether it's because they're lying on their deathbed wondering what's coming next, and that you will have the conviction to say, I am okay with this because of what I know to be true. But more than what I hope for you in persecution, mockery or in death is that we you would be able to live with the character of christ through all things no matter what may come to you for those of us who are here who are followers of jesus uh, jesus i would challenge you to try to grow in grace in power and wisdom don't see what we celebrated here through communion as just being about getting you off the hook with god but seeing as the catalyst for life change 
for a better life with him. Let us not just view our faith as what's going to come one day at the end, but what our life could really look like all the way until then. We give up so easily on what the meaning of Jesus can be for us day to day. We go, oh man, I can't wait till Jesus returns again or till I get to him, whatever one comes first. I can't wait till there's no more pain, no more sickness, no more suffering, till there's a new and better way. And we give up on the fact that Jesus came to earth and said, I've got a better way for you to live until then. All that's coming, but there's more in store if you'll simply follow me. If you'll give yourself into a relationship of giving yourself the work that needs to be done for the character of Christ. And really, in fact, it's not truly work. It's a great joy and privilege that we have to meet with a loving God who sacrificed himself for us. It's the joy we have of seeing how the Holy Spirit can come to life and work in and through us to bring hope and healing into the lives of other people. We often look back at these stories and go, wow, look at what happened back then. And we give up on the fact that the same Holy Spirit is still at work and still wants to accomplish bringing healing in the lives of people here today. And it's happening other places. If you're not seeing it, the question isn't, is the Holy Spirit at work? The question is, am I at work with the Holy Spirit? Am I spending time with him? Am I pursuing the character of Christ in all these things? We need to stand up and embrace this. And enjoy what all that means for us. Now for those of us who aren't yet followers of Jesus here, maybe this is the first time you've heard about this, maybe you've heard about this a number of times again, I want to ask you the question that I think C.S. Lewis would ask you. How far are you willing to go in what you believe in? What's your certainty of what you can stand for through all of your life and maybe even into death? Are you ready for the death that every single one of us is going to face and what's going to come after? Do you have something to have hope in? Well, you do have something that's been offered to you. Jesus came and lived a perfect life and showed that there was something better for now. But then he died on a cross to pay the payment for your sin. Everything you've done wrong, everything that you have gone after that has left you empty and hollow, he died for all that so that if you would turn around your life and trust in him and try to pursue what he wants to give you, that he will pour it out lavishly upon you. That he will give you joy and peace and hope now and for eternity. It's going to mean that life's not necessarily going to be perfect or easy, but it's going to be a whole lot better in pursuit of him. And then, on the day when you die, things will not just end. You'll get to be in his presence, and you will get to experience the fact that there will be no more sickness, no more sadness, no more suffering, but you will be with the God who loves you in perfect peace. Can we pray? And if you're not a follower of Jesus and you love to cling on to what this means, I would love for you to pray with me today. Let's pray, God. We thank you for not leaving us up to our own. I thank you for not leaving it up to me to accomplish perfectly, but that you have shown a better way. Heavenly Father, Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. 
Help me to trust in you and him. Lead me as I try to follow you. Enable me to trust in you in all things, even in the face of death. Amen. You know, for all of those of us who pray that prayer or something like it, we have this promise that a new creation comes into our lives because of what Jesus can do for you. Whether you prayed that prayer, if you want to know more, I would encourage you to, to speak with someone here. Maybe you know someone else who follows Jesus. Maybe you don't know someone. You can come and speak with me or, or you can go to the Connect desk and Shelly can connect you with one of our other staff or elders. We would love to talk to you about what it means to walk with Jesus. And if you did pray that prayer, we'd love to celebrate with you because we truly believe it's worthy of celebration because it means there's hope and new life in the world because what Jesus has done in you today. But whether or not you've prayed that prayer, I would encourage you to pursue Jesus. Draw closer and closer to him and don't let him just be the deal that gets you off the hook at the end, but allow him to be the giver of life for all things from now until then. Let's pray again, then we'll continue on to worship through song. Heavenly Father, we thank you again. God, I just can't say enough thank yous today. I just thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming to live in us as we follow you. Thank you that you continue to deliver on your promises time and time again. God, we are just so thankful that we have a God who loves us with, with, with such immensity, with, with, with such pursuit. And God, I just pray that we would embrace that for every moment of our lives. God, will we be a people who would be known for our character because of our pursuit of you? Not for our glory, not so people will, will tell stories of us like Stephen, but so people will look at you, Jesus, that they'll see a pale comparison of who you are and, and what you can do, and through that, that they would come to know you as well. And through that, would you be glorified would you be honored? Would you get the, the respect and the awe and the praise that you deserve? So God, as we go through this week, would you give us reminder time and time again to pursue you, to love you, to grow in our relationship of you? We thank you for that opportunity. We love you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.